Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Cécile Mitoire. And we are your hosts. Now we start this episode with a disclaimer saying that the the EADB does not advocate the medium of tattooing and in general does not have a formal opinion on tattoos. However, we recognize the importance and relevance of the topic to the practicing dermatologists of today. One person who certainly does have opinions on tattoos is Dr. Nicholas Kluger, our guest today. He's known as the tattooed dermatologist on social media. He is a French, Finnish, senior dermatologist and adjunct professor of the Department of Dermatology at the Helsinki University Hospital in Finland. He's been researching tattoo health-related issues for the past 15 years and opened a specialized consultation on tattoos at Birchac Claude Bernard Hospital in Paris. He's also the president of the French Society on Human Sciences Applied to the Skin and has interest in dermatology when applied to social and cultural aspects, such as social medias, religion, cinema, art, etc. Dr. Kluger, thank you for being with us today. Welcome, Dr. Kluger. Thank you. Thank you very much. Could you tell us about your professional journey and motivation? Uh, so, um, well, I'm French, uh, so I was graduated uh, from Paris for my medical studies and I was a dermatologist in Montpellier as a resident and as a chief. And uh, because I got Finnish roots by my mother, uh, I decided to leave France in 2011. And I moved to Finland and I did my PhD there. And now I am a full uh, senior dermatologist in Helsinki. So thanks to your active participation and content creation on social media platforms, you are regarded as a highly acknowledged influencer. In your opinion, how could fellow dermatologists harness the power of social media and what are its potential drawbacks? Uh, well, it really depends what you want to do with it. Uh, definitely there are people who are doing it uh, for a commercial purpose, for social, for personal branding, for uh, advertising the activities. It's a lot of my colleagues who are doing uh, aesthetics. And actually, there was a very good talk by uh, Leonardo Marini at the EADV about uh, this uh, brand, self-branding. I think it's still accessible uh, on the website. Um, but me, I use it more for fun, uh, for uh, just carrying information, interesting academic knowledge. Of course, you can also advertise your own publication uh, because it's become very important uh, nowadays. There is this new alt metrics, so you can measure your article's popularity on, on social media. And it's very interesting to see that what can be uninteresting in terms of impact factor citation can be very interesting for people uh, in general. So that's that's very interesting for that fact. Um, then the drawbacks, uh, again, well, it can be time consuming uh, every day to be on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, so that's why I say it should be fun, not take it too seriously also, because there are always someone who's going to complain, someone who's going to criticize you out of the blue and you should not take it personally. And also stay polite. It's very <laughs> difficult to stay polite when you have a message from someone anonymous who criticizes you for you don't know why. So you really have to stay focused because 
then it can get out of hand very quickly if you write something and it pops out on the internet <laughs> and it stays there. So you can have a drawback. So that's the thing that you have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm just going to ask this out of curiosity because I know that you're both active on Twitter and Instagram. And which one is your favorite platform? Uh, well, it's completely different because Twitter is really small message, so uh, you can make a link with um, with your articles or with article of the GeoADV. For the for the uh, Instagram, it's a bit of mix of personal things also, so it's and it's pictures. So uh, I would say for the work, I prefer Twitter, but I'm trying a bit of Instagram. But again, I don't try to push it hard. I don't think I will be ever a social influencer on Instagram. So I just try to keep it easy and have fun with it. I'd like to jump in and, and start to explore what do dermatologists and patients need to know about tattoos? Now, you have several tattoos yourself, and as a dermatologist, you have extensively researched health issues related to body art. And actually, soon you'll be heading the EADV Tattoo Task Force. So we'd like to ask your opinion and your thoughts uh, on some questions. Uh, we'll start off with with a fun one. What do we know about tattoos among elite football players during the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France? What do we know? Uh, well, first, this was a very fun article to do uh, because mm-hmm. it's not very serious. A typical article that goes very well on social media, but will never make a high impact factor, most likely. <laughs> um But uh, yeah, so, uh, well, the interesting thing for the Women's World Cup, because I did exactly the same the year before for the men, mm-hmm. so I tried to make it quite equal. Well, uh, almost 30% of the women uh, who played on the field had tattoos, uh, mostly South Americans, and that we know that South Americans are very into tattoos. And I also tried to see if there was a link between getting a ta- having a tattoo and Would you be more competitive because mm-hmm. you would think like, okay, I got a tattoo, I'm more aggressive on the field. And actually there was no difference with the goals, the penalties, yellow card or red card. And the interesting thing is that when I checked compared to the men, it was absolutely the same proportions. So it's very funny to see that basically in football, men and women are basically influencing themselves as, as a group because they really imitate one of the others. So that was a, a very interesting, funny study to do. But this isn't completely unfounded. I know that in the past there have been studies uh, that show, for example, teams with red shirts or jerseys tend to score more points in certain situations. Totally for the for the goal for the goalkeeper. If you mm-hmm. have a goalkeeper with a red uh, with a red shirt, it is said that he has more likelihood to stop the to stop oh, wow. the. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't know if it's a good quality study, but yeah, 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 it's totally true, actually. Yeah, that was a very fun study. Um, a little less fun. What are the cutaneous complications related to decorative tattooing, including blurry halos? And viral warts and seborrheic keratosis. Well, for the complications, the regular complication for everyone basically there are five, six delay of healing after tattooing. You can have crust or necrosis if the tattooist has overworked too much the tattoo during the session. You can have local infection. Sometimes it can be disseminated. Usually it's in this case, the customer or the patient has some kind of comorbidity or immunosuppression. And um, regarding these uh, blurry uh, halos, it really affects most likely women with fair skin. 
And usually it's in areas which are quite thin, like inner side of the arm or dorsum of the foot, because we don't really know what happens. We know that it happens because the ink has gone too far, too deep in the hypodermis, but we're not really sure why it happens. Is it a technical problem? The skin is too thin, uh, ink properties, it's still a bit uh, open to discussion. And lastly, for, for the warts, uh, basically it's most likely people who have already warts on the tattooed area, but usually they don't see it. Uh, then the tattoo, the tattooist goes over the tattoo, and then it disseminated, disseminates um, the warts, right. and then they can appear and start to flourish on the area. So when when people think of tattoos, a lot of things come to mind. Carcinogens in tattoo ink is probably one of the last things they think about. Now you published some work on tattoo associated uh, keratoconthoma. Uh, what do we know about the potential carcinogenic compounds and tattooing compositions? Well, what do we do know in general is that we have very few cases of, of skin cancers on tattoos, and they are most likely uh, a background uh, noise uh, because you have people who we know that skin cancer are getting more and more frequent in the population, and people are getting more and more tattoos, so you are likely to have by accident a, a skin cancer on a tattoo. Mm-hmm. That's true that there have been problems with tattoo inks for years because we found possible carcinogenic uh, product. But now since 2008, at least in Europe, there is a regulation that has been uh, suggested by the Council of Europe. And normally, uh, we, out of, from the ink, uh, there are components that are forbidden including the one which are carcinogenic. And uh, I would say that um, yeah, if you get a tattoo nowadays uh, in Europe, the ink are safer than before. It's more a problem if you get a tattoo from other countries, uh, for instance, for inks from Asia, we are not sure what they have inside because they may not be tested the same way as we do in Europe. Uh, and also there have been recently some uh, tattoo model in mouse uh, it's come from Denmark. So the author have simply tattooed mouses, mice, and they check with light or without light if skin cancer happened to them. It was kind of interesting because in the mouse, which get tattooed in black, mm-hmm. and despite uh, you put light on them, the skin cancer appeared around the tattoo, but not on the tattoo. Oh, okay. So, well, I wouldn't say that uh, the author said that the ink was protecting the, tat- uh, the skin. I don't think it's a good message to say that, <laughs> but it seems that the ink has absorbed the UV and prevented, in a way, uh, the, the, the cancer. So that's quite interesting because that we can be kind of reassuring considering this uh, carcinogenic risk nowadays uh, uh, in inks. But the tattoo keratoacontoma is a bit different because it's a, it's a tumor that you can get without any tattoos. And it's uh, usually something that happened very quickly after a trauma. So the tattoo associated keratoacontoma um, is most likely associated to the tattooing procedure on the pecular skin because usually the case happened in middle-aged people, not your regular 20, 30-year-old, but more like 50, 60, 70-year-old people, uh, and usually in red. So there could be a combination between the inflammation, the color, the type of skin, which would make this keratoacontoma appear on the tattoo. I've been resisting the urge to ask if the tattooed mice were seen as cooler or more popular than the control group. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they had to all die for the study, so they didn't really enjoy oh, no. the, I don't think they enjoyed it very long, unfortunately. Oh. Well, 
What did your literature review reveal about tattoo-associated uveitis, with or without systemic sarcoidosis? Uh, it was something that uh, was in the literature. So you have people who was get the tattoo, they make a tattoo reaction, and at the same time they have eye inflammation. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have we know that people with tattoos can get uh, sarcoidosis in their tattoo. And sarcoidosis can give also eye inflammation. But when I look at the literature, there was a small part of patients who only have tattoo reactions uh, on their tattoos and eye inflammation at the same time. Mm-hmm. Usually it's quite severe, actually, because when you look at the articles, they really need a very high immunosuppressive treatment because of the eye function, which is uh, geopardized. Usually it's men. They have granulomas in the tattoo, uh, in the black tattoo. So you take a biopsy, it tells you it's a granuloma. But when you look for sarcoidosis, which is the main diagnosis that come into mind when you have this case, it, we don't find anything. So the question is whether this is really a, an entity which is separated, which would be called immunoallergic, with the eye and the skin reaction, or is it like a sarcoidosis subtype for which we fail to find other symptoms? This is a bit uh, still open to debate, but usually the people who have this uveitis and tattoo granuloma without sarcoidosis, they have really have a very bad prognosis for the for the for the eyes. Really, they really need a, they really need a high immunosuppressive treatment to to keep the sightseeing correct. Was this a fairly common occurrence? Uh, no. Now in the literature, there must be. Uh, when I did the review, I found only twenty cases. Mm-hmm. Now maybe there is thirty cases in the literature, so it's not something very common. And but it can go most likely unnoticed by people who don't know this condition. Uh, if they don't know, if there must be a bit more. Uh, in the outside of the literature. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do dermatologists need to know to help their patients make informed choices on skin art? First, I would say think, like uh, there was this campaign by Krista de Kuiper uh, recent, for some years ago about it, very nice uh, campaign. So really have to think before getting a tattoo, no uh, t- impulsive tattoo, uh, better to think about it before I get the ID straight. Uh, choose well the design, choose well the tattoos. It's very important that you can go to different tattooists and check who you really trust and uh, who's really going to work well. And it's like a, almost like a doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel comfortable, but you change. Uh, professional in a tattoo studio, no garage, no home tattooing, no gig tattoo, or that kind of thing. If you have a condition, a skin condition, Discuss with your dermatologist or your physician about it because when is the proper time to get a tattoo? I think it's important also to warn the tattooist that you have a skin condition that you have to be careful about. Respect the aftercare that gives a tattoo that the tattoos give you because usually they are quite good at giving the correct aftercare, so it's better to follow what they say. And if you have a, a tattoo reaction or complication, you can you take contact with your dermatologist to see what's what's happening. And for somebody with psoriasis, what factors should a dermatologist consider when advising a person with psoriasis who wishes to be tattooed based on the results of your article that you published in the JDV, uh, Tattoo Complications in Treated and Non-Treated Psoriatic Patients? Well, uh, I would say, first of all, for the doctor, the dermatologist who receives a patient, it's a non-judgmental approach. The opinion of the dermatologist for tattoos is totally irrelevant, that's very important because some patients told me, like, oh, the doctor told me I don't like tattoos. It's not 
the, the doctor's problems. It's just how we conceal his psoriasis and the tattoo. Uh, you have to know that in France, we did a study recently, for two years ago now, 5% of our tattooed patients had psoriasis. So it's possible to get a tattoo when you have psoriasis. But you have some patients who don't dare, who, who wanted to have a tattoo, but don't dare to do it because they fear complications. But we in this study you mentioned, uh, we found in this cohort of psoriasis patients, 20% had tattoos. And after all, there was very few complications. There has local complications that are possible, especially if you have biologic. Uh, but there was nothing that was, uh, I would say, severe. So uh, again, all the, what I said before about what the dermatologist, uh, sorry, what uh, the patients need to know about uh, tattoos, well, you can apply it for this patient. It's rather safe. Of course, no tattoo if the patient has a tattoo, has a, sorry, a psoriasis flare, that's logic. And if he or she is receiving um, immunosuppressive treatment or biologics, you have to discuss the correct time with the, with the dermatologist because if the dosage are high, of course, you will have to wait. But if it's like a, a, a maintenance therapy, there may be possibility to find a window to get the tattoo done. Uh, I would just say that there is never an emergency for the tattoo. You can always do it later. Mm -hmm. If it's not the right moment today, you can wait. It's something permanent, so you have time to wait for it a bit if necessary. Oh, that's great information, and I think really, really nice for people to hear. Um, so now let's move into buyer's remorse. Tattoo removal. There are lots of good reasons to get rid of a tattoo, to remove a tattoo, um, but... What do people need to know about tattoo removal? Uh, well, they need to know first that we have only two techniques that works. It's laser removal uh, or surgery. Uh, all the other things that you can find, over-the-counter product, uh, internet products, that creams, removal creams, doesn't work. Uh, you have now a new trend for some lactic acid or other product that you would in introduce in the skin like a tattoo it makes a very bad uh, it makes a, it creates a necrosis of the skin and then the ink goes away it was an excellent technique in the 19th century <laughs> but uh, not anymore because we have laser and, and, and surgery so that's the main thing to remember of course for the for the laser treatment uh, an efficacy of a hundred percent is not guaranteed right so it's expensive it's painful it will take time, especially with professional tattoos. Uh, you have to count uh, a usually a, a session uh, every two months, usually, and it can take one, two, three years. It really depends on the complexity of the tattoo. Uh, normally, uh, amateur tattoos are removed way more easily. It will also re depend on the dermatologist, and I always recommend them dermatologists who have a good experience in, in, in tattoo laser removal also to, to minimize the time of, of the overall uh, removal period. I'm just curious, does it hurt? <laughs> uh, well, I, I never tried it, but uh, people complain that it hurts. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, it hurts. And they say that it hurts more than the tattoo itself, most likely because the motivation is not the same anymore. <laughs> Painful, I can imagine. painful laser is a bit annoying. Okay, right. good to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Now we would like to talk about uh, a bit about art case studies in dermatology. Uh, you have published several articles about different dermatological conditions observed in art pieces in the JDB, uh, including smallpox scars in a 19th century portrait at the Turku Art Museum, case of keratosis pilaris rubra in a 17th century portrait, seborrheic uh, dermatitis in an oil painting at the Gothenburg Museum of Art, and a case of erythroderma in an oil painting at Tate Britain. So which one is your favorite art case study and why? Out of these fours, um, hmm. uh, it's hard. I would say maybe the last one from the Tate Britain, uh, because it was a, a, a complete fortuitous discovery at the museum. Um, and the trick is that um, uh, I think the picture, when it's published, you don't see it as well as you would see it live, because live, you really see this character in the middle of the painting, which is dressed all white, and his face is completely red, and it pops out uh, when you stand in the museum. When you look at the picture in the article, it's, it doesn't feel the same, unfortunately. So I had comments like, oh, yeah, you're pushing it too much. That's, oh. There's nothing which is actually true when you look at the picture. That's true that you have to believe it. You have to go to London to appreciate my article, actually. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about how you identify and analyze these paintings from a dermatologist's per perspective? Uh, so what I do, it's called uh, econodiagnosis. Uh, it's uh, just uh, interpreting, let's say, skin symptoms on art. So mostly I do that on painting, but you can do that on sculpture or any other piece of art, even photography. Uh, again, I do that for fun. So I go to the museum. Usually, uh, usually almost all the articles I do, I have seen the painting live in most of the case. I try to avoid directly the picture on the internet because you cannot always rely on the filter, the picture quality. Um, so... Then it's just random. I have my little, I have a little book with me, and I write things. And I look at the pictures. I like portraits, so you have to stand one meter, one meter and a half from the painting, and you just have to look at it the same way you would look at a patient. So you really look at the face, the hands, and you try to see if you find something that would point you to some skin disease. Uh, of course, it's uh, highly personal. It's an interpretation. No one can completely confirm that what I see is true. Uh, so it's a funny activity. Of course, it's not only looking at the picture and saying, okay, I see something and I'm going to write an article to the GUADV and the GADV publish it. It's not that simple. Uh, it's more about uh, reading also about the painters because you have to check that what you see is not a, a style habit. You can read also from the sitter, the portraited. If it's someone known, you have to also check his story if the symptoms you see may have a reality background, if it's possible. It doesn't always work if it's an anonymous, but uh, for someone known, you can try to find it. And you have also to put into perspective to the social cultural context of the time, because uh, as you know, there have been, uh, uh, for instance, in the Renaissance, we know that it seems that women had this hairstyles, they cut hairs, they plucked hairs, and there was sometimes misdiagnosis of alopecia uh, on portrait, which was only a, a style of, 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 of the trend of the fashion at the time. So it's really uh, a big work, finally, for a small article, of course, not all the time, but you have to do a bit of work because you may think you see something that no one sees, and then you try to look, and then you're like, oh, no, it was nothing, finally. But it's very funny because it gives a, a new way to visit the museum also. When you go to the museum, sometimes you stay two seconds in front of a portrait and you find way much more things 
by, by looking at it a bit longer. So it's a good training also. And I would like to add that you can do that in every country, in every museum. You don't have to go to the Louvre or to the Tate Britain. I mean, I do a lot in the Finnish museum, mm -hmm. so they are not like the biggest ever. So you can do that in your own country. Any small museum, you can find a little pearl that no one has seen just by uh, checking. So that's also making very interesting. Uh, I'd like to go into the COVID-19 in dermatology. Uh, you published a letter to the editor in the JDV uh, in July concerning potential inaccurate interpretation and overestimation of published data in skin manifestations of COVID-19. What are these potential pitfalls and their implications? When the COVID started for a few months, I've been doing the literature almost every day, uh, very regularly about skin manifestation. And because I was almost doing it like an obsessional compulsive person, I didn't miss any articles. And I started to see that some authors were publishing quite a lot. And obviously, um, it was the same patients that were coming again and again and again. And when you publish this kind of thing, you have to mention in the article that, okay, uh, this cohort I'm talking about, I published it uh, last week or one month ago. Because if you do a review, you may believe that you are talking with different patients. So you are artificially um, making statistical mistakes. And, and there have been a bit... Uh, it's been a rush in March, April, May for lots of teams to publish about skin condition and and uh, and uh, and COVID. So there was a bit from some colleague. I think they should have been a bit more, uh, I would say, just honest and and mentioning that okay, be careful if you're using my data. You have to remember that the other article is also the same patient. Uh, so it's it's the implications are more in terms of meta analysis mm -hmm. when you want to analyze the result. Uh, we need to know what you are talking about and where the data come from. So that was just a, a bit of a reminder about that that I wanted to do in this small article. But at that time, like you have mentioned, it was uh, quite a race that the articles were just pouring in and... Yeah. But, but actually, it has been published recently, I don't know in which journal, but the quality of the article about COVID have been a bit lower than the regular quality of the article. It's been a bit of, now it's getting a bit, hopefully, a bit down despite the pandemic, but that's true that has been a bit, it's, it's, it has been a bit difficult this summer and spring. Mm -hmm. True. Absolutely. What can we learn about the COVID-19 outbreak from analyzing the data generated through Google Trends? concerning the search behavior uh, trends for acral symptoms in France and underreported chillblains in Nordic countries. You've done some research in this. What can you tell us? Uh, yeah, basically, I wanted to see, you know, so Google Trends, as you know, it's a, it's a tool from Google, so you can uh, check in real time and on uh, the past years if a keyword is trending on, on Google. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see retrospectively if we could find signs of these uh, cheap lanes uh, already before it was really uh, evaluated as a possible disease, um, a possible link with COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was not very easy to do because the problem with Google Trends is the use of the keywords, because if you use the word cheap lanes, not everyone people know what a cheap lane right. is. Uh, we all have a several a different word in, in a different language. So we have with a colleague, we have to put 
terms like red finger or red toe to see if it was popping out. And indeed, we felt that there was a small surge of search before the COVID toes were, um, were identified. But we cannot say when using Google Trends, we cannot say before sure for what reason the person is typing on the computer the red toe or red uh, red finger. So it's just an own uh, uh, interpretation that we did that there was possibly maybe um, uh, really people made a link between the red toes and the and red red fingers and, and COVID. Um, but that was just a bit of interpretation. And then I read it the same in Nordic countries because even in Finland, Sweden, Norway, uh, we had COVID. We have COVID, but at a less higher compared to uh, Spain, Italy, or France. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see uh, if there was also a search for these cheap lanes. And actually, it was it was appearing a bit for Norway and Sweden, but there is no really case published about this COVID toes. It's really COVID toes. It's only France, Italy, Spain, and the USA. Germany, I have seen no publication, a bit Belgium, Scandinavia, nothing. So it's a bit question if these cheap lanes are really related to COVID or if it's just a coincidental association because it's still very debated and nowadays it seems that we are now going to say it was maybe the confinement and not really COVID. So it's, it really changes every month. So uh, I wanted with this last article to push my Scandinavian colleague to try to collect their own data and publish about it, but I don't know if it will work. We have to see, but it's true that in Finland we have very few cases of, of cheap lanes associated to COVID. Mm. So uh, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky. Well, Dr. Kluger, those are all the questions we have for you today. We really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. That was Dr. Nicholas Kluger, a prolific researcher who has published many articles. And beyond that, he can be found on Twitter as Nico Kluger and on Instagram as The Tattooed Durham. If a topic has piqued your curiosity, you can find these articles in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. So until the next episode, take care of your skin. <laughs>